Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, November 13th, we're studying 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 9. St. Paul warns Timothy concerning the difficulty that he will face in these last days before Christ's return as people fall into false belief and other great shame and vice. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Andrew Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Gutenberg, Iowa, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in McGregor, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, good to be back. So we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss, let's talk context. We've read the first two chapters of 2 Timothy so far. What do we need to know about this epistle, about the context going into our text for today? Well, this is the last epistle that... Paul writes to to Timothy. I mean, there's only two of them, obviously, but it's uh, it's one of the last epistles, I should say, that that Paul writes that that we have. I mean, it's it's, it's clear that Paul is near the end of his life. Uh, he speaks uh, near the end of his epistle about about running the good faith uh, or the uh, fighting the good fight of faith, running the race, and so he's really preparing Timothy really to, to take over, to, uh, to be prepared to be, continue to be a faithful minister of the gospel without Paul around. And he is, he's really, he's kind of given him his marching orders. It almost reminds me of David's last words to Solomon, where, where David is, is admonishing Solomon to use his wisdom, to be a, to be a good king, uh, to be, aware of of others who have who have been out to get him and not be fooled by them and so it's a similar kind of thing that we're seeing here where Paul is warning Timothy of the ways of the world and the deceitfulness of of the devil and he's giving him admonition to do the work of uh of the minister of Christ. With that, then let's go ahead and take a look at our text for today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, 
as was that of those two men. That's the text for today, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Preuss, Paul starts off by telling Timothy that they are in the last days and that in these last days there will be times of difficulty. What what are the last days? Are, are they something of the past, something of the present, something of the future? What what are the last days as we begin this conversation? Yeah, the last days are the 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 days before Jesus comes again. And uh, you know, we you often might be asked by people, do you believe that we're in the last days? And the answer for a Christian should always be yes. And I think when, when people ask that question, they're, 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 they're assuming that there is going to be this kind of uh, predictable sort of period of time that we, can, that we can identify a specific period of time in order to be able to make some sort of estimate of when Jesus is going to come back. Mm. And this is, this is not... This is not the uh, the right way to look at it. Instead, we should see the last days as the the time of the church here on earth, where we live under the grace of God, waiting for our Lord, our bridegroom, to return at any time. And so Jesus speaks in this way. I mean, he even Jesus speaks in reference even to his crucifixion uh, as you know, really the fulfillment of all things. It's the, the fullness of time where he's taken away the sin of the world, but he describes it as judgment as well. John chapter 12, he says, judgment has come, now, now, now judgment has come and the ruler of this world is cast out. And he's referring to his, his crucifixion, and uh, he says to his disciples you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. He, and, and before his crucifixion, leading up to it that week, he, he gives several parables about the last coming, right, and, and how you should be aware of it. And he kind of connects it with, uh, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem as well. And so, you know, these are things I've been thinking of a lot because I'm in the one-year lectionary and this coming, uh, the, you know, this coming Sunday, at least as we record this, um, is... Uh, is Matthew 22, where Jesus is referring to his, uh, you know, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and, and that, that sort of stuff. So, but at any rate, the last day then is when Jesus comes back to judge. And so the last days would be the days that lead up to that. And so really, I think a good way to look at it is the last days are the days in which we have our, we fix our eyes upon the cross as well as upon the, the, you know, the return of Christ. So we're sort of in between the two advents of Christ, his first advent and then his second advent, which really kind of in the middle, there's sort of this, this middle advent where he continues to come to us through his word. Right. And so the, the last days then, Paul and Timothy were living in them. You and I are living in them and Christians will continue to live in them until our Lord returns. As you said, a Christian should understand when asked, are we living in the last days? The answer is yes. Not understanding that as some way of sort of telling time as if I can look at certain things and say, ah, Jesus return is closer because I saw that. Well, Jesus return is closer because 
we're just advancing in time because we're getting closer to it. But it's not necessarily to, to say that I can pinpoint X, Y, and Z, and that means that it's only, I don't know, three months or however far away. It, that's that's not the point. The, the point is he's coming soon. And, and so the things that Paul writes here to Timothy, these are things that Timothy faced and we continue to face until Christ returns. The way that Paul talks about it, he says, in these last days, there will come times of difficulty. What are these, these times of difficulty that St. Paul brings up here? Yeah, the, these times, it can also be translated as seasons. And it implies then that they, they kind of come in spurts. And Jesus compares this to a woman giving birth. So, you know, you have, you have, you have the, the pains of labor. Um, so they're, they're, like, they're like little contractions. And, you know, it's, as you would know, I'm sure with your wife, um, and uh, you have wife and children, right? That's correct. I, I thought, yes. yeah, yeah, I thought you did. Okay. And so I'm sure you remember, you know, when your wife is giving birth, uh, that she has contractions and they are several minutes apart and then they get closer and closer and closer together. Um, and so after each contraction, there's that bit of relief. And so Paul says, you know, in the next chapter, he tells Timothy to be ready to preach the gospel, to preach the truth of the word of God in season and out of season. And so this is, this is implying then that, yeah, there are times when things seem to be, things seem to be uh, easier, um, but then there are other times when things seem to be a lot harder. And this is actually what's interesting about this. When you compare what he says in the, in the next chapter with what he says here about seasons here, he's talking about difficult seasons, very difficult times. Mm. And so are these, are these the times where it's in season to preach the word? Or is it in season to preach the word when you don't have the difficult times? Well, I don't know. I suppose you can make an argument in both ways, but I would, I would, I would lean towards saying that the that the more fruitful seasons are actually when they're difficult. Um, this is really when the word of God is gonna is going to be plowing the hearts of people, um, and uh, and so there's, the, but and yet at the same time, what makes things difficult here in these in in these difficult seasons? as we'll, we'll see, are things that are very much, very much destructive and impediment, impediments uh, for the truth of the Word of God, for, for you know, they kind, of pre- they kind of prevent people from hearing the Word of God. So, so we should understand these, these times or these seasons, again, as specific moments that, that pop up, and that we might understand them more generally in an age or in your own life and your own experience that you're going to have your good days and your bad days. And you should just be warned that when you have your bad days, when you experience the, 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 the arrogance and pride and love of money and all this stuff from people who don't want to hear the gospel and, and chase after earthly things, that these are times that our Lord has warned us about. With the comparison to a woman in labor and the idea of contractions that they they come and go, it thinking with the last days again, should we as Christians expect that the to use the image again that the contractions will get closer together and more painful as we get closer? I think so. Yeah, I think we should expect that. And this is something that you know Luther and the and and the other reformers. Uh, they, 
you know, I, I say that one of my professors at seminary would be really upset with me for referring to reformer as you'd say, there's only one reformer that's Luther, <laughs> but then the rest of them are, I guess the other theologians. So at any rate, they were convinced that they were in the last, the last times as they should have, but they were very convinced though, that Jesus was very much coming very, very soon. And that these were undeniable signs that he was about, he was about to come really any moment. And now we look back on that and we think, uh, were they just being naive? No, they weren't. They were, they, were, they were being truthful. And God, in his great wisdom, chose not to, not to appear yet. Uh, you know, he, he, but, he, but we should have that same attitude. We should have that same expectation that Christ will come at any moment. And we should notice how the times get closer to, you know, these difficult times get closer together like contractions do. And we should pay attention to that. See, again, the goal is not to predict when Jesus is coming. The goal is to be ready when he does. And, you know, the, so, so if we are preparing for that without trying to speculate on this or that date, if we're preparing for that, then we are in a good spot because we're relying not on ourselves, but on the grace of God in Christ. And, and that's really... This is really the point then is to be sober minded and not be not be driven away with uh, by the cares of this world. So yeah, I would to answer your question in short, yeah, I would say that they do get closer together, but that doesn't mean that we can thereby calculate it. Right. It's it's another just another way of us recognizing what's going on so that we would always be ready for whenever it happens. It's going to come like a thief in the night. We won't expect it. I mean, Jesus, as you mentioned, all kinds of parables that that sometimes in the parable, the expected figure will come too late. Sometimes he'll come earlier than you expected him. I mean, the, the whole point is you don't mm-hmm. know. So be ready. And one of the ways that yeah. you know he's coming is that it does keep getting really, really bad. And as you said, whether you lived when Paul lived or when Luther lived or when we live, we should be ready. We should be expecting these things to happen. Now, the, these things that Paul's going to list here are all of these difficulties that come up. And there's this long list that we've got. And obviously, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but but to look at some of them in some detail. So the list starts in verse two, people will be lovers of self. Does Paul put that first on purpose? Do you think? I think he did. I think it, I think it, it corresponds to Galatians five, where Paul talks about the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And you can see this comparison with the fruit of the spirit which, by the way, it's not, it's not fruits, plural, it's one fruit, and, uh, but they're all together, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I may have missed one in there. But, uh, but the, you know, with, with love being the first of the fruits, you know, that love which proceeds from faith, that's very significant. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. And love never ends. And so it would, it would make sense then that the beginning of this perilous time, kind of the, the first fruit, the first sour fruit, I should say, of this perilous time or perilous season is self-love, which is really the opposite of the love which, which Paul describes in 
or which Paul lists as the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, the, the love that he, that he uses there in Galatians 5 is, I believe it's agape, if I'm not mistaken. I guess I, I could go back and make sure that I check that. But, uh, but it should be agape, and, uh, and that's that self-giving love, right? And so I'm going to check it actually right here. The, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, let's see, what does he say? Yeah, the fruit of the Spirit is agape, yeah. And uh, so, so love, joy, peace, and, and so on. But here in Second Timothy uh, chapter uh, 3, he uses, he uses the other word, you know, phyllis, but it's like, a, it's, it's like a phylla autos, I think is the word that he uses. It's like auto, like, like, uh, 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 like auto love, right? You, you love of self. And this is, um, so it's not a self-giving love. It's, it's the opposite of a self-giving love. It is, it, is, it is looking at your own interests before anyone else. And this is really, I mean, we see this, we see this today uh, in, the, in the so-called self-esteem movement. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times people use the word self-esteem to describe maybe, maybe a, a certain amount of, of confidence to be able to to do the things that you should be able to do, you know, to kind of believe that you can do it and be confident that you can do it. That, that, and I think that we could understand that correctly as Christians, believe that God has actually equipped you to be able to do your duty, that God's going to see you through, um, you know, uh, you know, love, uh, love the work that God's given you to do. Don't despair of the work that he's given you to do, you know? So, you know, I think a lot of times when people when people say that maybe a, a child lacks self esteem because maybe he, he's he's not he's not able to he kind of walk, maybe walks around with his head down and and is just not not able to get along with people. They're I think they're misdiagnosing it. They 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 they're they're trying to diagnose something. They recognize there's a problem, and and perhaps we we could say that he hasn't that this that. that this child has an issue with, with uh, confidence. Okay, but but confidence in what? Confidence in himself, love for himself, or is it love for God and what He has therefore given you to do? So th- there is something very comforting to, and some consoling wisdom that we can apply to people who kind of have that what 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 the world might call low self-esteem but the, again their problem is not that they have low self-esteem often their problem is that they have too high of self-esteem and they you know th- what they need is to know the love of god and thereby to be given the the, the fruit by the spirit to imitate that love of god and to, to give yourself for your for your neighbor to give yourself to the, the the work that God has given you to do with joy in knowing that God has has given it. But see, what Paul's describing here is just the exact opposite of that. It is a it is a, a love of self. It is interest in oneself and one's own uh, accomplishments and uh, and and benefits at the expense of the neighbor and 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 worst of all, at the expense of of true honor for God. 
what about the next in the list? Lovers of money. We've heard this term come up previously in Paul. He's talked about a pastor not being one who should love money. And he's, he's warned against at the mm. end of first Timothy as well. How is it being used here? Yeah, I think he's just kind of picking up on it. I mean, he's all, he's obviously described this more in detail to, to Timothy in his, in his previous epistle. So that, you know, in, in first Timothy chapter three, when he's talking about the, qualifications for a bishop or, or a minister of the gospel, that he shouldn't be a lover of money. He shouldn't, in other words, he shouldn't, he shouldn't make money his goal. He shouldn't dwell on money so much. Uh, he should have some freedom from the concerns of money, which, by the way, is part of the reason why pastors should be paid, so that, so that it's easier, so that you can, I mean, the congregation should want to make it as easy as possible for the pastor to not have to worry about money. <laughs> Uh, so he doesn't become a lover of money, but it's upon the pastor, though, to make sure that, uh, and every Christian, for that matter, uh, in his own duty, uh, in his own station in life, to make sure that he does not make his work about the money, uh, and, and that he doesn't become obsessed with money, either as someone who has a lot or someone who doesn't have enough. You know, it kind of reminds me of Psalm, uh, Proverbs 30, I believe it is, where he says, do you have a 30 or 31? I think it's 30, uh, where he says, he says, "Give me neither riches nor poverty, lest I, lest I uh, be full and forget you, or I steal and blaspheme you." Right, and so, so this love of money can be both, both from the rich as well as uh, from the poor who wish they were rich, <laughs> and uh, and so this 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 is uh, this is naturally going to follow the love for self because if you're loving yourself, then that means that you. Are the are the one who who is to take care of yourself above all things, right? So you become kind of your first god, and really, what is the first thing that God does? He is our creator and preserver, right? He he provides for everything that we need in, in this body and life, and and so if if you're replacing God with yourself, well, then what do you need to do? You need to support yourself and. And 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 uh, be a, and then you're going to end up obsessing over how you support yourself. So really, this ends up being a a, a very deep slavery, uh, the love of money. Uh, when you can when you can have contentment, uh, that's when you're free. Mm-hmm. And that's and so that so we're finding kind of the opposite of being content. Mm-hmm. The next two things that Paul lists are pride and arrogance, which at least in English are, are synonyms. What's the what's the difficult times that he describes with those two words? Yeah, and I think that those are those are those are uh, they look like they're synonyms there too, and they just kind of go together. Pride and arrogance. What's interesting about that word arrogance? Uh, uh, there's when I, I remember when I was in seminary and we we read. I, I was in advanced Greek. Uh, and we we were reading Maccabees, and they would, and we'd read it in the Greek, and it would, and 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 every time this uh, and and Epiphanes and Tychus would would do stuff, you know, would attack them. They would always say with great arrogance, mm. and uh, and that was, the word there is hooper aphania. and so you can kind of you know hyper, um, you know, kind of braggadocia, you know, like you're 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 shining out. Um, uh, you know, and, and you're doing it. You're 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 doing it more than you need to. Um, so it's it, it, it's it's in other words, it's just pride. It's puffing yourself up. 
And uh, what's interesting about that word is that in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, uh, which would have been read by Christians during the time of Christ and even, even uh, a couple centuries before, this word is used to describe the sin of Sodom in Ezekiel 16. And uh, so, of course, the sin of Sodom, we know, is their abominations, which Ezekiel mentions. Uh, he doesn't say exactly what those abominations were, but all you got to do is go back and, and read it in Genesis, and you see that this was, uh, among other things, uh, the perversion of homosexuality. And so, I, and so it's, it's interesting that Ezekiel first describes pride. He first lists pride, or hooper uh, as their as their sin. And I really don't, I don't think that there's any coincidence that uh, our modern homosexual movement is called the pride movement. You know, the, the, the result, you know, the, the result of, uh, of pride is going to be these kinds of abominations. And, uh, and that's the next thing that he mentions, right, is, is in our translation, it's abuse, but really, what's the Greek there? It's, uh, I don't know if you have it in front of you. The, the Greek there is, is, well, just to kind of transliterate it in English, blasphemy, yeah. right? So, I mean, this is, this, is what, this is what pride leads to. This is uh, when, you, when you, you first, you love yourself, you, you love money, you, you, you care only about supporting yourself, and you become totally independent from any kind of order that God would put in place, right? I mean, you look at, you look at what God created in creating marriage, he created a man and woman to be one flesh, to give themselves entirely to one another. And children are a, are a sign um, and token of that unity of one flesh. I mean, you can kind of see the evidence that you're one flesh with your wife when you look at your, ch- you look at your child who looks like both of you, right? Yeah. And there's that binding, that, that, that evidence of being bound together and that you see that you're giving yourself, you, you don't live for yourself. You can't. Now, I suppose you can, you can, you might you could claim in a homosexual relationship that you are living for the other person, um, and I suppose in, a, in an outward worldly sense you could you you could demonstrate that to an extent. I suppose, um, just like you might have a good friend. Even unbelievers can, you know, as Jesus says, even unbelievers do good to their friends, right? Um, but the kind of love that that the Christian faith holds on to is is the love of the Father who gave His Son up for the sins of the world, uh, the, the, you know, the love that caused his incarnation, the love which is unspeakable to, to the carnal mind. And it's something that is shadowed in, in, the, uh, in the institution of marriage. And, and so you, it's, it's no coincidence then that, that when that institution is attacked, that it breeds pride and it then is, uh, it manifests itself in, in really disgusting blasphemy uh, against God and what he has what he has done and said it doesn't take a very long look at this list to see that as we were saying we are in fact living in the last days waiting for Christ's return you're listening to sharper iron here on KPO we're going to take a short break but we will be right back please stick around
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, November 13th. We're studying 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9 through 9, with Pastor Andrew Preuss. He serves Trinity Lutheran Church in Gutenberg, Iowa, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in McGregor, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were looking at this long list of vices that Paul lists. We left off about disobedient to parents there in the middle of verse 2. I'm going to let you just start there and, and hit whatever highlights you want from this long list of vices. Sure. Yeah, I'll skip over some of them, but I, I wanted to talk about the disobedient to parents, which is... I think also something that we definitely see in our day that is very troubling. And it's something it has always been around. You see Cain killing Abel, obviously. He's not only breaking the fourth, the fifth commandment, but he's breaking the, the fourth commandment uh, on your father and your mother as well by killing their, their son. Um, and so this has obviously continued to be a bane on, on people uh, ever since the fall into sin. But notice that disobedience to parents is followed by ungratefulness. And so rejection of godly authority is what proceeds from a selfish attitude of self-love, and then it's therefore unable to give thanks to God. So this goes back to the the problem of the self-esteem movement, is that it doesn't teach people to give thanks to God and thereby be joyful and happy about about the duties that God has given you to do. Uh, instead, it, it, it turns them within themselves to to think of themselves first, and they're therefore unable to really give thanks. And you know, we can kind of try to manufacture Thanksgiving by putting on big shows and events and and uh, public relations projects and 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 even thank you cards, which of course you know a nice it's nice to get a a card, uh, but but this is the kind of thankfulness that the that that the spirit works within us is one that is n- not coerced at all it, you know love joy you know it, it, peace patience right joy is what follows and you i'm reminded of the of of the samaritan leper who's who was cured of his leprosy and came back rejoicing thanking god glorifying god and there's no there, there's there's no way to give like a, a, a methodological step-by-step way on how to have that thankfulness, just like there's no way to do that with, uh, with thanklessness. Thanklessness is something that is naturally going to proceed from a despising of the one who gives us all good things. And that is God. And he, and the, and, and his authority is exercised first through the authority of parents, uh, you know, so so you know, another thing that comes to mind when it comes to thanklessness is Luther in his in his letter to the Christian nobility is, is admonishing them to devote themselves to the importance of Christian education, making sure that people have that the people know who Christ is, know the doctrine, 
and, uh, and that they receive a good Christian upbringing. And he talks about this rain cloud of the gospel. He says the gospel is like a, a passing rain cloud, and it rains over this place, and then, it, and then it passes over, and it rains over in this place. So, you know, it rained in, rained in Jerusalem for a while, then it rained in, rained in uh, Greece, and it rained in Rome, and then it passed over, and it went to, now, now, it's, now it's in Germany, but it's going to pass over again. And now we can see now, we can see it today that it's, it's still raining a little bit among us here in the United States, um, but but the, the you know the, the the rain cloud is starting to kind of pass up pass over. And Luther said, you know, he asked, well, what, why is it that it passes over? What is it that, that causes the rain cloud to pass over? And he said, it's thanklessness. It's not being thankful that we have the word. And you know, sometimes we can get so bogged down and obsessed with all of the little details about church and about the Christian about the Christian life that we forget the the joy. Of, of the gospel and of hearing the gospel and confessing the gospel to one another, telling our, our friends and family about Jesus and talking about his word. And that, that right there is such a joy. And, and, and we do that in thankfulness to God, which is, which, which again, can't be manufactured. And so when that thankfulness goes away, when that joy goes away, then all that's left is slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but uh, so to finish up then this litany, this litany of vices, it really, it wraps up, it starts to wrap up, up then with the loving pleasure rather than God. And this is, and so, so this is sort of, sort of uh, going back to the beginning of the list, right? What begins with self-love is then wrapped up with not loving God and, and, and loving pleasure in, instead. And so this shows then how the first idol that we have is really ourselves. You know, the first commandment is broken, when we look within ourselves rather than looking to God for everything that we need. Uh, and then finally, these, the, the, the vices conclude with really the most sinister vice of them all, and that is this form of godliness while denying its power. And I want to talk about that a little bit, uh, a little bit later in a few minutes here, but I want to kind of back up and, 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 and consider that vice of being unappeasable. And this is one that I think we, we especially see it and notice that we should notice this as Christians when we try to talk to people who are becoming increasingly hostile toward the truth of God's word, whether it's the simple message of the gospel or maybe it's uh, maybe it manifests itself in other issues like is Jesus the only way to heaven or is uh, is marriage between a man and a woman right stuff like that, and it's amazing how people who uh, some people can be convinced, right, who will listen to the Word of God and actually listen to sound arguments. But it's amazing how people will be just unappeasable. And it just doesn't matter what you do. Uh, you know, if, if you, you, and, and, and so we should, be, we should be very much on our guard to avoid trying to appease them with some sort of offering. You know, and that, that word for, for unappeasable, it comes from that word for uh, a drink offering which the Greeks would, would offer to the gods, right? And so it's like you try to make a drink offering to them. It's not going to work. You know, they're unappeasable. They, and and, and this, is, this is in direct contradiction to how God is. God is appeasable. He is appeased, in fact, by the offering of his son, you know, a, 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 a sweet-smelling aroma uh, by which he took away all our sin and satisfied his own wrath against us. And so those who reject the gospel can't possibly be, be appeased, no matter how much you try to pander to them. So you shouldn't try to pander to them. You should speak kindly, speak soberly, clearly, uh, and, 
you know, and, and, and trust that God's word is going to do the work. But if you try to give into their, into their demands, uh, and try to sort of pander and soften their, you know, their hearts by your own kind of, by your own kind of concessions, then that's not going to do any good. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, considering then the list as a whole, what's the usefulness of this list for, for pastors, for Timothy, for pastors today, for the, the church of Christ? What, why does Paul give it? What's the usefulness of it? Yeah. Well, it's useful in reminding us just how difficult these seasons will be. And when we experience these things happening, it's very comforting to, to go to the scriptures and see, Oh, wow. They said the Bible says that these things will happen. Right. I mean, this is like in, 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 in John's gospel, when Jesus is telling his disciples, but I've told you things, I've told you these things beforehand so that when they do, you remember that I told you. Right. So that, and, and there's actually great comfort in that and knowing that, oh, okay, so this is to be expected. I mean, go back to the issue of a woman giving birth and labor. You know, let's say she has a certain feeling or, or pain that she's feeling while she's in labor and maybe she's really worried about it. And, uh, but she was told beforehand that, no, that's a common thing. That's something that you should expect to happen, right? Then she's not going to despair, right? She's not going to think, oh, no, what's going on? This is all just falling apart. But she's just, she's going to know, okay, this is, this is normal. This is to be expected. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not going to despair. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on, uh, on God to, to, to take me through this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when things happen, like if you feel symptoms that you've never felt before, then you get worried. But if you feel symptoms that you're familiar with or that you know about and you, and, and, and you know how to, how to, how to, you know, work with them, then you're not going to despair. Right. And so, so when, when children, you know, when, when, when children are allowed to sleep in on Sundays, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, their parents just kind of let them do whatever they want, or they're, they're afraid that they're going to get angry when, you know, when, when people are loving themselves, when people are are not interested in hearing the word of God, or they seem not interested at all, they're undependable, and they are never able to really seem to learn anything and don't seem very interested. These are things that show how difficult and almost really, it seems impossible for us to be able to survive, right? That's something like as a, as a Christian, as a pastor, when I see, for example, in infrequency and inconsistency in just basic, something basic like church attendance, it's very, it, it easily makes me very worried. Like, oh no, what's going to happen? You know, when this, when the generation, when, 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 when the generation that's, you know, in their eighties is and nineties are past, you know, in their seventies, like, what is it going to be like when I'm 50, you know, is there going to be anyone here? <laughs> and then even if we, even if there are people who are members, when are they ever going to come? You know, like those kinds of things, I'm sure bother any pastor, especially in a smaller congregation, but even at a bigger congregation, I mean, we, we see demographic changes and, and these are these are things to that that, that that cause us to worry. But when we look at the scriptures and we see that Paul tells Timothy still to preach the word, even when these things are happening, and to remember that God said that these things would happen, that you would have 
an overwhelming rejection of the Word of God, then that actually gives us some good good comfort and assurance that okay, so this is this is to be expected, and don't despair. It you know we, we just keep preaching the Word and um, and be ready to do that. Mm-hmm. Similar similar to the way you might apply Jesus' parable of the sower, where he tells you that the seed is sown on four different types of soil, and you've got these types of soil that the seed's just not going to grow or it's not going to produce fruit there. It prepares the pro, the pro, the, the preacher of the word for that reality. And just like here, it prepares the church, it prepares the pastor that this is going to happen. Don't lose heart. Continue to preach the word. As you said, in season and out of season, as he's going to, to bring up in chapter four, this is the way it's going to be. It's going to be difficult. We don't want to downplay that at all. None of this is easy, but knowing that it's coming is a source of comfort and strength and encouragement for the pastor, for the church, as these seasons of difficulty come. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, Pastor Price, you, you said the, the last thing in this list was something we wanted to come back to. The way that Paul concludes it is he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Why, why is this at the end of the list? What's so sinister about it? Yeah, I, it's it's perhaps the worst of them because it's the most deceiving, and and it can it can come from a more liberal bend or more conservative bend, uh, where you know people claim to be Christians, uh, you know, while at the same time they flat out reject what the Bible teaches, and you know this is obviously the liberal version, which is very prominent in our country. Uh, and it's unfor- it unfortunately deceives many people. You know, look, God is love, so therefore, don't call anything a sin. And Jesus didn't die, or, or, or Jesus, uh, Jesus, uh, 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 so faith in Jesus is not necessary, or whatever. And really, ends up be, ends up destroying the truth altogether. That 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 Jesus didn't really die for sin because there's really no such thing as sin, right? You know, so that kind of that deceitfulness that that parades itself as a devout Christian while it blasphemes uh, every action and word of God. And those hopefully should be easier for us to identify. But I think where we need to be more on our guard as conservative Christians who believe the Bible uh, is we got to be on our guard against those who teach all the right things and yet they don't treasure the power of the word. Now, what, what do I mean by that? That is that they, they rely on worldly things instead of on the plain testimony of the word. They rely on politicking and underhanded ways and, strateg- and, and kind of strategies that are not really grounded in the word. I mean, I'm all for strategy and planning, but, but ones that are not grounded on the word, but are more geared towards sort of bringing in uh, chaff, bringing in the masses and not really concerned about whether God's word is being taught faithfully, um, and and but this can be given this this can be covered with a uh, with a very pious front, um, and uh, or people who oppose the so-called church growth movement, but then will turn around and uh, and you know not stand on the truth when it is not convenient for them to do that, right? So I mean, it can come in many different ways. It's very deceitful. And it really does hit closer to home for us when we understand that, that we're not just talking about a bunch of uh, a bunch of leftists who, who promote abortion while claiming to be Christians. It's 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 it also happens among among those who would otherwise be very 
conservative. So, and so, so we are to avoid these people, right? That's what he says, avoid them. Don't try to reason with them because these are the very ones who are, who are captivating, as he says, weak women. And I don't know if you want to comment on that. The whole the his talk about weak women. Well, I mean, it it is. It's probably worth a, a couple of minutes here. We've got about uh, eleven minutes here, Pastor Price. But I mean, it's pr- just because it, it may strike our our ears in twenty first century America. Like, well, why does he single out, you know, those who creep into households and capture weak women? What? Why that? It it just may strike our ears as odd. So it's, it's worth a few minutes reflection. Yeah, well, notice that he's saying, he's talking specifically, he, he, he's talking about specifically about women who are weighed down by sin and led away by passions. And the thing is, is that this is, I know that my, uh, that my wife, who stays, stays at home and takes care of the kids, she often gets weighed down with sin, you know, and uh, she's, by, she's, she's usually by herself. And, uh, doesn't, and just has a bunch of, uh, kids around and it's a wonderful blessing. She loves, she loves that task with the joy, but it's very easy for, for, uh, a woman who is by herself and has that responsibility to get weighed down with, uh, with sin and, and maybe even passion for something seemingly better. And I think Paul has a special concern for the vulnerability of certain women and really, really of all women. I think that women are more vulnerable than men. Uh, that's something that I'm not going to spend the rest of the, the hour uh, making my case for that. I think it's pretty obvious. They're in more vulnerable states. Women can get pregnant. Men can't, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's just one example. And, uh, and we look at the beginning and who was it who was deceived? Paul makes this point in First Timothy 2 when he says that women should not preach, but men should be the preachers, um, that, because the woman was deceived, right? And that there's something that God has, there's something beautiful about the weakness of, 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 of women that is precious in God's sight, as Peter talks about in First Peter chapter 3. But this also allows the apostles to be very to be very honest about this as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, it sounds patriarchal. That's because it is. Um, the order of man and woman in marriage is a shadow of Christ in the church and the very restoration of God's image. Right. So, and so these, what, what these deceivers are doing is they are disrupting this very order and, and they're, they're going and they're, they're, they're getting in the middle of what God would, uh, would, would, would design what God has designed and what God would have be done. Um, what God would have done, Ugh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I say that the disruption of, of God's order was evident in that list of vices. And we were talking about the disobedience to parents. I mean, throughout that list, that was one of the themes is that these, these vices are all disruptions to God's order. And so, so this fits here in that same flow at, Paul, Paul concludes this little section by saying that these same deceivers, those to avoid, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Uh, Solomon has something to say about that in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I have that right here. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected saying they're given by one shepherd. You know, that is God, right? Christ is our shepherd. My son, he goes on, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Uh, there's a, there, there's, there's a win for scripture alone, right? 
Um, yeah. but my son, beware of any, anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end and much study of the weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is, listen to his word. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, yeah, that's, you know, there's this uh, footnoting that's constantly going on and yet never coming to acknowledgement of the truth. And you see this with the scribes in when Jesus comes. You know, that Jesus speaks with authority, unlike the scribes, who are always kind of quoting other rabbis all over the place. If you, if you read portions of the Talmud, you can see examples of that. They're always just quoting this guy and that guy and that guy. You know, like they're somehow trying to get published in Oxford, you know, with an Oxford uh, publishing deal or something like that. So, <laughs> so uh, with after that, then Paul Paul compares this to two names that, that maybe we're not very familiar with, and I don't even remember how I pronounced them when I read it earlier, Pastor Pro, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, just as, as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. Now, who are these two guys? Yeah, so Jonas, Janus, I don't know. I think I was saying Janus and Jambres, but probably Jonas and Jambres. You're probably right. I don't Let's know. Let's just stick with that. So okay. Jonas and Jambres, so they're names that are traditionally given to the, these two magicians of Pharaoh, uh, who are and, and the magicians of Pharaoh are mentioned in Exodus chapter seven that when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh to to tell him to let God's people go and worship him in the wilderness, uh, he 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 wouldn't let him do it. And so Moses, as a sign of God's power, had Aaron throw his staff down. And Aaron's staff turned into a snake. And that was one of the signs that God had given to Moses on Mount Horeb when he was there, when, when God appeared to him in the burning bush. And then Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's uh, magicians did the same trick. And they threw down their staffs and made a bunch, you know, they turned into a bunch of snakes. And then God's snake uh, ate their snakes, which is, I think, very significant. It, 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 it kind of sh- shadows the, uh, the bronze serpent who uh, takes away the bite of the serpents uh, that, 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 that had bit God's people for grumbling against him. And also it goes back to the beginning of the, the, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, right? This is what God, God is, uh, his ultimate plan is to send his son to destroy the serpent's, serpent's power. And so, uh, but those who have, who try to wield the, the power of the devil are those who are trying to imitate God, right? And this is something that, the devil always does. The devil is always imitating God. He did that in the beginning with Adam and Eve. You know, did God really say this? Well, no, this isn't what God meant. What he meant was that you'll be like him. And, uh, you know, he does this with Jesus in the wilderness where he, where he quotes Psalm 91 and says, he will send his angels concerning you. And, 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 but he takes it out of context. And this is just always what the devil's doing. He's using the word of God. He's using the power of God, trying to imitate the power of God. But, um, but it's really just an empty form. And he denies the true power of God, which is to forgive sins and to rescue us from his dominion. So what's the point of Paul? We got about four minutes here. What's the point of Paul bringing this up in Second Timothy three, these two guys. Well, he's preparing Timothy for for people who will oppose him. Hmm. He's pre- preparing Timothy for for those who promote what is falsely called knowledge, who promote babble, what is falsely called knowledge. 
as he mentions at the end of his first epistle to Timothy. And these these are the the, the wolves who would come in, as, as he describes to the, the the bishops in Ephesus in Acts chapter twenty, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing who are going to be preaching false doctrine, right, and sneaking in and uh, and and trying to sheep steal, right. And I think that any 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 faithful pastor who has been a pastor for you know for for at least a little while has I'm sure experienced this with members in his congregation who they get they they get deceived by people who might give uh, a nice sounding Christian message uh, but they are really uh, they're they're stripping away from them the true comfort that's given to us in our baptism, that's given to us in the body and blood of Jesus, that's given to us in the full atonement of Christ, that's given to us in the 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 the, the soul working of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, and instead teaching them to rely on themselves in some way and in some sort of inner light um, or emotion that they might have, uh, you know, or or maybe they'll take advantage of a frustration that they might have with their pastor, with other members of the congregation, and they just kind of uh, fan that flame. And this is stuff that we have to deal with all the time, and we should always be on our guard against it um, and not be surprised when it happens. And I'm sure that you, uh, Pastor Apple, have experienced that as well as I have. Yeah. Yeah, with with just a couple of minutes, Pastor Preuss, perhaps the way to to wrap this up is with verse nine, as Paul gives it. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I mean, this this whole text has been one of of great warning, lots of vice. It's it's kind of it's pretty heavy to read, but here at the end, I think you have a glimmer of of hope. That that Paul says to Timothy, says to us pastors and faithful Christians. This false teaching and these false teachers, they won't get very far. Their folly will be plain to all. With about a minute and a half left, help us see that verse and wrap things up for us this morning. Yeah, this is exactly what Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, where he's warning them about you know people opposing them as he sends out his disciples. And he says, there's nothing that will be hidden that will not be brought to the light. Right? This is, don't, don't be discouraged. It may seem right now that everyone, that no one, that everyone believes these lies, but they will be exposed and the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to have saving faith in him, but the day of reckoning will come and God's word, which he has given you to to preach and to confess will be vindicated. And that's a great comfort to know. Pastor Andrew Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Gutenberg, Iowa, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in McGregor, Iowa, helping us this morning with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me again. It was fun. Paul warns Timothy, warns faithful Christians what will happen. Times of difficulty will come, but our Lord is faithful. The truth will prevail. He is risen from the dead, and he will raise to eternal life all who are in him, you and me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.